uh, welcome everybody to um, Illinois Mycological Association mid-April meeting. Uh, our program tonight will be on linking DNA to the microscope with Timothy James. Anyway, Timothy James is a professor of ecology and evolutionary biology at the University of Michigan and a curator of fungi at the University Herbarium. He received his bachelor's of science in botany from the University of Georgia and a PhD from Duke University. And I'm turning it over to you, Mr. James. Great, thank you so much. Thank you for the opportunity to share um, what I do with you all, the people who are really uh, fond of fungi. Um, and it's nice to see some familiar faces. Um, yeah, so I'm gonna launch right into it. Um, and I'm trying to, you know, give an overview of some of the things I think about when it comes to my research, um, specifically linking um, DNA to the, what we see in the microscope. And hopefully it'll become apparent why I chose that particular theme and what it's all about. But um, I'll start by just saying like, we live in an era now where DNA sequencing has really just taken off um, so much faster than I could have ever imagined. Uh, when I was a graduate student, you know, it was still, you know, still challenging to sequence a fungal genome. It wasn't something I could have done. And now we're talking about, you know, the thousand dollar human genome that it could be routine for anyone who really wanted to have their genome sequence. And, and keep in mind, you know, that the human genome is, um, a hundred times bigger than your average fungal genome. Um, but so we live in this era of like DNA sequencing, um, but we we've have this tradition in mycology of, of using the microscope um, to make taxonomy, to do our observations. And so it it's kind of like we're we're at this stage where classic mycology was done using observations and microscopy. And then all this new data is coming from DNA sequencing. And in order to leverage what has been observed in the past, we have to now link the DNA observations to the microscope observations. Just I want to start with a little introduction of what our lab does. And this is a word cloud that I generated a few years back based off of some papers that we published. And just to give you an idea, you know, we're really into mating and genes and uh, diversity, um, but we, we really study diversity of species. So that's kind of our biggest, um, biggest uh, word in this thing. So we really embrace um, using and looking at different species and trying to understand their histories. So I, I work as a curator of fungi at the University Herbarium, and I, I'm in um, following in some footsteps that are really huge. Um, and the legacy of mycology in this institute is is really um, mind blowing, at least at least in, in my in my opinion. Um, some of the the best known mycologists in North America um, either worked or trained here, and um, particularly you know. Most of you probably know about Alexander Smith and his um, sort of crusades to publish field guides that really brought mycology to, to many more people across the United States. And he, he himself collected uh, nearly 100,000 specimens that 
are a major portion of this, um, or nearly 300,000 specimens we have in the herbarium. And, um, and so we'd, we have this great diversity and, and right now um, it's shepherded by Pat Rogers, who's our um, faithful and diligent collection manager. But the reason I get to be there is in part due to this guy, Louis Waymeyer, who, whose family left an endowment um, that was basically um, set aside to hire a fungal curator. And that endowment was a, a major reason that the university has always been able to have a mycologist on staff. This is just an example of some of the um, a specimen that he collected um, together with Calvin Kaufman. Um, and he was a special on pyrenomycetes fungi, which are the um, ascomycetes that produce these tiny little flask fruiting bodies. But some of them make these beautiful stromas like hypoxylons and, and xylarias. Thinking about DNA and the microscope, um, wanted to this sort of start with showing an exercise that I gave my class this year and just um, showed them these these whatever ten mushrooms and and also told them what characters these mushrooms had and you know some of them have gills and some of them have pores and asked them to assign, using that information, they had to put them into um, a, a phy, make a phylogeny using the data that they had or what they guessed the relationships would be to make a, make a tree. And well, this is what the tree looks like. And we know what it looks like because, you know, we have, um, we have DNA sequences and DNA sequences are how we make these trees. Um, but we also have these characters and some of the characters are completely misleading. Some of the characters are misleading, like, you know, pores are not like a character that unites things as being evolutionary related and, and gills have appeared many times in a tree. Um, but other characters that maybe weren't so obvious could, could actually be the characters that do matter. Um, and then this kind of example, and this is a little bit of a contrived example, but um, the Rushalales, which are, um, you know, the, the well-known genera Russell and Lactarius, but also this polypore thing, Heterobasidion, and they have spores that are often ornamented. Um, so she's a beautiful SEM here. And, and so this characteristic is, is something we observe in Russell Ailes. And so regardless of whether we know what the function is, it, it seems to be tracking the evolution of those, those species. Um, okay, so when I just start, like, I'm going to show quite a few trees, and I understand, like, Matt, I think, gave a talk on this last year, so you guys are um, pretty, pretty used to looking at trees and thinking about trees, but let's think about the processes to give rise to them, so, um, and why even thinking about things in a tree-like way is, is, is a reasonable um, way of looking at stuff, so, um, here's, this is from 23andMe, the company that will take your DNA and sort of try to trace back your ancestry. But here's the person who submitted their sample. And you can start to see who, you know, if they have the data, they can add in ancestors in previous generations and, and so on. And so all these people in this tree um, going up have contributed to Jamie's um, genome which is really fascinating when you think about it. So from the point of view of Jamie, 
um, the number of people contributing to her genome is growing over time. Okay, so actually, you know, if you go back in time from Jamie, you get an increasing number of ancestors. Okay, but if we look at a phylogenetic tree of species, we know that we're always going to a smaller number of ancestors. So why is that? Um, well, that's because we're not looking at the whole genome at one time and the the whether or not an organism sexual or not sexual doesn't totally matter when we just look at a single base pair in the genome. And this is just a diagram to sort of show what a single base pair looks like. So here's this guy and, you know, his he's got cells and each um, cell has a nucleus and um, all the new this the, within the nucleus, there's a genome and the genome is the same in all of the cells, of course. Um, but then let's say on the X chromosome, we have a particular region of it and we're going to just think about a single base pair. Okay, so that single base pair, um, we can trace its ancestry back in, in, in time. So that particular T, um, you know, is inherited from a chromosome that was in that, that uh, man's, uh, let's say it was in his mother. And, um, and so we, we go back in time and uh, like say this was a guy and that was the mother and passed off that particular T to that son and that mother got it from her mother and that mother passed it to um, two different um, children. Okay, so actually, so we see that sometimes the same piece of DNA, the same uh, specific base pair, if you will, is passed down to multiple um, offspring. And that's where you have this sort of coalescence of, of those, of that divided base pair, which is divided into, say, two daughters, goes back to the same base pair in the, in the single mother. And so using that logic, we can sort of trace back um, the history of that single base pair through time as it was given from, you know, father to mother and daughter and so on. And eventually, you know, we'll get to a single ancestor that was the, the individual who had that base pair and passed it off. Like in this tree, it's just this particular individual. And so ignoring all these, if we were to sample, say, these um, individuals in red and look back in time, this would be the, the phylogeny that we got just looking at that single base pair. Okay, this is just some kind of like um, logic for why trees are really the way of looking at relationships and are fundamentally accurate when we're looking at say like a single base pair. And now I'm going to um, talk about the history of the fungal tree of life and to look at um, a particular group that I'm, I'm interested in called chytrids. It was obvious that there was relationship between organisms going way back. You know, the, the forms do, do come in certain clades or in certain groups that are clearly related to each other, like plants and, you know, bryophytes and so on. And here's the earliest phylogenetic tree that's known. And you can see fungi in it. It's this tiny little twig, um, even smaller in size than lichens. Um, and also part of the plant tree. Okay, so we had plants, protists, and animals as sort of the three major branches in the tree. 
Um, jump forward to sort of what we think about it more recently. And this is a, I like this figure because it's just beautiful, but um, it has a few interesting ideas that are, that are um, seen in it, which is that, you know, some groups are just older. So like bacteria and archaea, um, the prokaryotes have been around longer. It, that gives you that idea. And then it gives you the idea that fungi are more closely related to animals. So here's fungi here. Here's a bunch of animals. Um, and then it gives you this idea that uh, things went extinct. So you have these tips. This would be modern time along the outside. And then these bands are various mass extinctions or the Cambrian explosion, for example. Um, so one thing it sort of gets wrong is the sort of fungi and animals branch off from plants. But another thing is that fungi just don't have a lot of width here. And in fact, um, the diversity that they're being given or shown in this figure is was well underrepresented. So part of the reason is that we actually don't have as many fungi formally described as the, the plant people do. For example, we have about 150,000 described fungal species, whereas the plant um, has on over 300,000. Um, but we estimate that there are many more uh, fungal species and there are various ways of making these estimates, but you can see that some estimates reasonably go um, into the like 5 million, 6 million range. Okay. Um, and so what that leads us to believe is that most fungal species have never been described. Now we, back that what that um, phylogeny two two slides back showed also was um, that fungi began diversifying er early on and one of the things that's pretty notable as soon as you start to see um, terrestrial life you see a lot of diversity of of major fungal groups and so this is um, a particular source of fossils called the rhiny chert and this is in pretty old fossils so this is in the devonian and you have, well, you have these things, um, which are uh, little single-celled, probably parasites. Um, they could be saprotrophs, but they're um, like, they're chytrids, obviously. And chytrid is something that makes like this flask-like uh, spore-producing structure called a sporangium. And then from the bottom of that sporangium, there's a rhizoid that penetrates into the substrate and it could be, you know, alive or dead. But um, this is a very distinct and clear chytrid. Uh, and the spores would be shot out from this end. And this is something that looks like a water mold that still exists today. And then this is something that's like a, one of these uh, perenomycete fungi. Um, that uh, that many people at, at the field museum have studied. Um, so so it was interesting that very early on a lot of a lot of different forms have have appeared. And looking at that at that time, um, you know the early fungal fossils um, dating to this Devonian. Here's like an artistic rendition of what the Devonian might look like. Um, we see so sort of sort of a semi-aquatic habitats, but we also see things like trees. 
Um, these are probably tree ferns, but at any rate, they're not that terribly different from, you know, this particular fen, which is one of the sites that we like to go to. And, um, and so maybe it, it's possible that the Devonian was an era where chytrid fungi, which are pretty common in the fossil record at that, from that period, were really the dominant fungi. And if you go to this fen and you're collecting here in this, um, in this habitat, you're gonna find that chytrid fungi are, are um, really common and diverse. So our lab is, is pretty crazy about chytrids. They're sort of the, the organisms that we're really focused on from a taxonomy perspective. So a little bit more about what those things are. Now, um, the, the chytrids are zoosporic fungi. So that means that they, they produce spores that swim. Okay, and so here's some examples of, of these swimming spores. We're, we're talking about, you know, five to 10 micrometers uh, in size. So they're very microscopic um, and they have a single flagellum and it pushes the, um, the spore forward. So the, when we look at like the diversity of fungi, most of the things that we know and that we eat for sure are in ascomycetes and basidiomycetes. Um, these are the macrofungi, but phylogenetic diversity or different named phyla are, um, they're pretty rich in these zoospork fungi, the ones with the swimming spores. Okay, so it's, it's an underappreciated diversity. Um, and these are all microscopic. So, I'm particularly um, maybe proud of being part of the Michigan team because some of the folks there um, were legendary and are legendary in, in study of these fungi. So here is uh, my colleague, Joyce Longcore, who um, was the one who described this chytrid fungus that's pathogenic to amphibians. And um, she received this Golden Goose Award um, from AAAS, uh, recognizing that her studies sort of sweating away in a lab, isolating these fungi and, um, and describing them was, you know, was, you know, tantamount when we, when this um, pathogen was discovered on amphibians, because it was a chytrid fungus. And so nobody else really um, was able to fully understand, appreciate its biology and to, and to work with this kind of fungus. And she figured out how to culture it and how to do infection studies and so on. Um, and, and so for that effort that she put into the, the basic biology of chytrids and then went on to really um, help us understand this global problem, which is amphibian disease. She received this award. And this is just a picture of her with uh, Fred Sparrow, who was a mycologist at the University of Michigan. This was back in maybe like 1960. So these chytrids are really relatively easy to find if you look for them. You can take a water sample or soil and put water with it and add to it um, substrates like pollen, um, shrimp exoskeleton, um, onion skin, 
and snakeskin. And these fungi specialize in these ecosystems and degrading these, these substrates that other things generally have a hard time degrading. Um, here's a picture of a chytrid growing on the outside of this pollen grain. But they're not only saprotrophs degrading things in, in these ecosystems, they're also major parasites of algae. Just here's some cool pictures of them. Um, here's a chytrid on the outside of Spirogyra. You can see these cells not very happy here. Sporangium is on the outside, and then the rhizoids are in penetrating in that the host cell. Cell's not doing too well. This is um, colonial diatom. And these things on the outside are chytrid parasites. And then even this is, I think, a marine um, dinoflagellate. So modal, modal um, marine alga, and it's got chytrids on the outside of it. So this may be a very important ecological role that they have. So I've been working to develop and actually preserve the resources of um, my colleague Joyce Longcore, who you know, she's already gotten uh, in numbers into the 1,000 in terms of chytrid strains that she's isolated, and this is a lot of strains. It's not like the 100,000 that 100,000 specimens that Alex Smith collected took a lot less time per specimen than each one of those chytrids that she found and isolated into pure culture. Um, and that's no knock on Alex Smith. It just is a different kind of, of labor of love. And then here's Martha Powell, who, um, who also was um, a, a chytrid systematist and collected many strains together with Pete Letcher. And Rayburn Simmons is a postdoc in the lab, and he's been the one. He was Joyce's only PhD student. He's been the one to sort of help get her collection and Martha's collection um, into uh, these liquid nitrogen freezers at the herbarium. And it's one of the things is, you know, these are microscopic fungi. So, you know, the microscope is, is always a part of the biology that we do. We, you know, we, we add pollen to, to water, we're going to have to pull out the microscope in order to see what we've got. And so you'll see that these, you know, scientists are um, prominently placed next to their microscopes. Although this is, um, this is an antique, I think, that was passed uh, to Joyce from Fred Sparrow. And she was passing it to Rayburn. Okay, so part two is talking about um, this DNA sequencing craze that I was mentioning before. So I'd say we're, you know, we're really in this um, riding this huge wave of data kind of phase, and it's it's really cool. So I wanted to maybe look at sort of the bigger picture of, of this, you know, this is a phase or a craze or just a revolution. I'm not sure which one of them it is, but it, um, it fits in the context of modern genetics and found this cool paper that, you know, has a bit of a timeline of genetics. And one of the cool things is the first thing on the timeline is the invention of, of optical microscope. And I think this is appropriate because when you think about it, you know, in order to understand heredity, we needed to understand what the, you know, organisms are comprised of cells and that they had nuclei. And in those nuclei, there were chromosomes and we would be able to need to watch them undergo mitosis and meiosis. Um, 
And then later we would get cool techniques like in situ hybridization where we could take DNA probes and light up particular regions of, of the chromosomes if they had particular genes that we were looking at, interested in. Uh, one of the major technical breakthroughs is also on this um, timeline, which is the invention of the polymerase chain reaction, 1985. And this is something that um, got Carrie Mullis a Nobel Prize. Um, but things have happened really fast um, with sequencing technology. Um, and the Human Genome Project was completed in 2003, and that took, you know, thousands of people working on the project. Um, and very shortly thereafter, these technical breakthroughs called second and third generation sequencing came out. And that's the stuff that now allows us to do the thousand dollar human genomes and for routine sequencing of, of very large genomes. How has this influenced mycology? Well, one is that, you know, genome sequencing is, is readily um, accessible to many. Um, two, and I'll talk about that in the, in the next slide, but two is something that also leverages this, this um, PCR reaction that I mentioned. Cool. One of the cool things is that the main th trick of it was that um, in order to do this fast and in a single tube, you had to have a, a, a DNA replicating enzyme that could really take a beating. And Carrie Mollis figured out that you could take this hot springs bacterium and isolate the DNA replicating enzyme from it, and that you could put that in a tube. And, and, and because it was so resilient to heat, you could, you could melt the DNA and you wouldn't kill the enzyme, basically. When I say melt the DNA, it's to separate the DNA into, into two, two strands. Um, but there's nothing too important to talk about on this, except that, you know, PCR was invented and it allowed us to now start targeting regions of the genome that we're interested in, or even particular taxa that we're interested in. And the, the way that's done is with these things called primers. So these primers have a small sequence that says, okay, let's go to, let's say the, the 18S ribosomal RNA gene and amplify up. Um, everything in the tube. And it, it produces a ton of DNA that allows you to work with it. Um, but how this has really been, been combined with the DNA sequencing and changed mycology is, is sort of what I'm trying to show in this slide. And one of the revolutions has been that environmental DNA can be sequenced and used to describe fungal communities. So, you can take a sample and let's say we take a soil sample from, from anywhere. And, and this, rather than isolating any organisms from it, we'll just extract the DNA from that soil because you can, you can basically use, you know, some chemical properties of DNA to get it away from the rest of the soil stuff. And then we can use PCR and we can, well, on this particular slide, you can either just go after, say we think there's, um, some inosibi in this soil and we can use primers that are specific to that inosibi species and if it's there we'll know it um, but another option is to just say let's amplify these barcodes up for all of the species that are in this sample 
And then we'll use sequence analysis to try to figure out the diversity of things in it. And, you know, what we want to be able to do is to say for every sequence that's in this complex sample, uh, what is it? And that's very challenging. And it's also limited by what we know. We have to have something to match our, our uh, sequences with that are coming from soil. They have to match things that are present in the database. Sometimes it works very powerfully, but in other times we have no clue what these things are we are sequencing. So this is just a general, what our lab is all about is we're really into DNA sequencing to understand fungi and to make the fungal tree of life. Um, we also, you know, would love to really be able to take a genome sequencing type of approach and then to use that to try to understand um, what, what an organism looks like, because essentially we know that you can take a cell and it reads its DNA. And then from that genetic code, it turns into some organism. Um, and we wanna know how the cell does that. Um, but in practice, what we're doing more, more recently is we, we know there are these fungi that are only known from DNA sequences in the environment. And we wanna know what they actually are, what they look like and what they're doing. Is most fungal diversity dark matter? Uh, one of the you know things I mentioned earlier is that there's a lot more estimated species than what was actually described. So we've had 150,000 described species in Hawksworth quite a while ago estimated there were 1.5 million species, so 10 times more than that. And oh, so. And this number is even low for, for what it is now. But so there's, there's a described species and the estimated discrepancy. Um, and then there's a study that like looked at these, used this metabarcoding approach with soil from throughout the globe. And they, they found in their sample um, what they called 45,000 species. And the overlap actually with described species was low. And that tells us that um, we actually didn't know what 40,000 of those species in that sample actually were. But, you know, the, the reason we're using these DNA approaches, and I should emphasize this part, is that if we were to use traditional approaches like trying to grow things on a Petri dish, we wouldn't really get most of that diversity um, because a lot of things will not grow in culture. And then other things will um, just grow too slowly and be outcompeted. So when it comes to fungal diversity, most of the stuff is on the dark side of the moon and we really don't know anything about it. So I'm gonna finish this talk, um, really just kind of just touching on this idea of how we're doing this, bringing DNA to the microscope. And we use three examples. I'm gonna start with this uh, group that is known now as archaeorhizomycetes, but it, we used to be known as soil clone group one. And this is a boring table because it's you know not much to look at, but it's pretty was pretty exciting in 2008 because at that point, 2008, there had been a lot of studies that had sequenced soil DNA. And they had found that there's this major group that is in there and it's really not closely related to anything in the databases. 
and so um, we could see that it was present in a bunch of different studies. And, and so we knew it was the same group because, you know, the sequences were genetically related, um, but they weren't related to anything we really knew what it was. And in some cases, it could be a large portion of the soil community. So in these tundra soils, 16% of the fungi that were present were in this group. And another the one old field, it was a dominant species in the samples. So what is this thing? So that was a mystery and it was called soil clone group one. And I um, was peripherally associated with this research was I helped a, a colleague um, who had found that they actually had a culture of it. And it was, they had this um, large survey that they were doing of root associated fungi growing on pine roots. And they had thousands of cultures and they just happened to have one of these. They had sequenced all of these cultures using you know, DNA sequencing of this barcode. And it was just sitting in like a hard drive somewhere. And they finally decided to look through there and, and notice that they actually had a match to the soil clone group one. And here's the culture that they had. It grows really kind of funnily and slow, very slowly. Um, and, and so, but having this culture really all of a sudden changed the ability to, to infer the biology of the fungus. So that allowed them to, um, do inoculation studies. So this, they inoculated the fungus back onto pine seedlings. And you can see that it's sort of growing on this, the roots of the seedlings, but it's not actually you know, doing a whole lot. So here's a cross section of a root and this blue stuff here is the hyphae growing on the outside. It's not penetrating into the root. So it's not like a mycorrhizal fungus or anything like that. Um, and the morphology is not really very exciting either, to be honest. Um, you've got uh, hyphae with simple septa, and there's no pore or anything. So each one of these like segments is completely isolated from the other segment. Um, and it doesn't make aerial spores either. It only makes these chlamydospores. There's a scanning electron micrograph, and there's one or two nuclei per cell. Okay, so it doesn't give us a lot of clues to look at the morphology. Um, and phylogenetically though, now that you had um, a culture, you could sequence many genes and ultimately this thing has a genome sequence. Um, and, but having more than one gene allowed us to, to place it into somewhere in the tree. And it grows in this group called Tophenomycotina, which is a really, eclectic group of, um, of fungi that uh, don't look anything like each other. So here's Neolecta. Um, this is the only thing in this group that makes a fruiting body and it um, looks kind of like an earth tongue kind of, or yeah, some Claveria or something. Um, this particular species often grows in, in bogs. And then other things in this group are um, Schizosaccharomyces that has this fission yeast. So that, that's just basically all it does is grow as a yeast form. 
Um, so, but it does allow us to sort of figure out where it is in the tree and also now to start um, to start pulling in together a bunch of studies that have found this and and then we can character we have the genome sequence now and so we're able to like look at what the genome says it might be doing and um, those studies are now underway uh, to try to characterize this rather unusual fungus but so the, one of the lessons is that um, you know it takes a lot of legwork so to speak in order to to get this culture so you know, if you weren't persistent or if you didn't have these like large surveys, this culture would have never been, um, you know, isolated. Uh, so it shows the value of this, of generating these large collections of, of cultures. Okay, but you know, not everything can be cultured and there there are reasons for that but most mostly things can't be cultured because we just don't know how to i, mean, I would say that that's that mostly there's a knowledge issue rather than like the fact that they just can't grow in culture um but nonetheless uh we want to get around that ability to culture things and to start looking and characterizing organisms without being able to culture them and so our lab has been focused a bit on using single cell genomics and single cell sequencing to, to find cells in the environment and to get DNA barcodes from them so that we can link what we're seeing in the environment with the, the DNA sequence from, from those studies that, that just uh, sequenced environmental DNA. So how does single cell sequencing work? First, you start with a complex sample, um, and it could be, you know, tissue or it could be like water. And then here's where some of the hardest part comes in, which is getting single cells into a tube, basically. And there's a few different ways. Um, there's this really cool te technique called laser capture microdissection, where you, you can basically use a laser to catapult a particular cell of interest into a tube. Um, and there's like cell sorting methods that use like um, the flow of, of small droplets of liquid or actual devices with really small um, channels that have uh, fluid running through them. And what either way you get a single cell and then that cell you can extract the DNA from it and then use this thing here called MDA which is a, a way of taking that DNA that you got from that one cell and, and amplifying it. This is a viral polymerase and it amplifies everything without regard to what its sequence is. And it allows you then to get enough DNA that you can work with because you can't really do much with a single, um, a single cell's DNA because it just the, all our other techniques rely on having a lot of DNA. So you get a lot of DNA from this viral polymerase amplification, which then can go into sequencing analysis. And, you know, as I mentioned, you can use these fancy things like flow sorting and microfluidic devices and, um, and etc. But what our lab has done is, is, is to just use like a tiny little needle and uh, or a microcapillary and 
we did this project where we were really wanted to um, sort of work the other way around. So typically in single cell, you know, analysis, it's just like you take your water sample and you run and you isolate all the cells. You don't look at them and you sequence them individually. But what we want to do is to work the other way around. And, and, and I have to say, you know, we've been graced to having some really good taxonomists in the lab who, who know the organisms and are able to find the organisms in, in nature and to find that, to, to say, well, you know, these guys like Fred Sparrow um, and, and George Barron and these guys were able to find these organisms and document them and describe them, but they've never been sequenced and they haven't been sequenced because they're unculturable. So what we wanted to do was to, to find those things, which are really not that hard to find if you know how to look for them and then sequence them and then work the other way and try to match them up with sequences that had been deposited in the databases that had no match. And um, so we focused in on these, these things called predatory zoopagales. And they're really interesting fungi. Um, they, they're predatory in that they're sort of like grow as this mycelium and then they, produce these infection structures like these adhesive pegs that trap these rotifers, for example, or these amoebae, and then they feed on them. Um, and so these um, very interesting fungi, and they, they have never been cultured in, in pure culture. So, um, but if you put like soil on a, a Petri dish of water auger, and you um, know what to look for, you'll very often see these, these amoebae uh, attacking things. And um, so that's what we did. And, and um, we were able to find some of these things that were described in the literature. These, these are amoeba parasites. The ones in bold are the things that we observed. We could put a name on it. Um, and then we made this comparison to the database and see these, Weird names are just stuff that um, that was deposited from environmental DNA. So it's where someone just sequenced soil. And uh, we're now able to say, oh yeah, this is almost certainly a colopagy. So this amoeba predator and other things, you know, we can say, oh, this is probably an amoeba predator as well up here. One of the things, so that was the part that we expected we could do, but one of the things that we were surprised about is that when you sequence the genomes of these things that, um, that you're isolating, you, you're not getting necessarily just the fungus. And what we were intrigued to find is, this is just like some information about the structure of the sequences within that sample, but, you know, each one of these dots is a particular region of the genome or the sample and the um, the white dots are things that were matching fungus and then the the purple dots are things that are matching bacteria and we found in this one particular predator nematode predator stylopagia that it was consistently associated with a bacterium and so I'm not sure if you all are aware but some of the more recent um, mycology studies have shown that very often bacteria can reside inside fungal hyphae. Um, and those bacteria could be um, parasites, 
or they could be um, even mutualists, so they could be beneficial to the fungus, or they could be, you know, commensal somewhere in between. Um, but we, we found this um, bacterium inside of, of this predatory fungus, and it was, you know, related to this Mortarella um, bacterium. So Mortarella is just like a, a soil, a soil fungus, and it's showing some of the pictures of the bacterium inside of the Mortarella, and we're hoping to try to observe our bacterium as well. Okay, lastly, I'm going to talk about um, the parasitic chytrid project. Just like with these predatory um, zygomycetes, chytrids have chytrids, which are these, you know, these swimming fungi have been well characterized in the literature. We have like a thousand species described. Most of that was done in the earliest 20th century. So that was before, you know, we even knew what the structure of DNA was. So certainly we don't have sequences for them. Um, a lot of them are parasites of algae. So they're hard to culture. Um, so here's the project that we're doing, and it's really been spearheaded by this brilliant scientist, Kensuke Sato, um, who's a, a really, he's got a wonderful ability to observe and find these chytrids, and he's got wonderful um, hands in terms of getting, getting those um, organisms to behave. So his project, he's basically taking these soil and, and, and water samples, and he's checking them for infection, so to see if there are chytrids in them. Then if they're infected, he wants to get a single cell. And in getting a single cell, then take a picture of it, okay? And we'll know roughly what it looks like and roughly what it might be associated with in nature. Then we'll do this part where we amplify all the DNA and then we'll generate some barcode. And now we'll try to match it up with, with um, what's in the database. So here he is um, doing his washes with his mouth pipetting. Um, and so like, you know, and it's really pretty simple to get those single cells. So he finds the cell that's infected or has the chytrid, and then he'll just individually pick that cell up and then wash it in drops until it's pretty clean. And I'm not showing too much of the data that he's generated, but one of the more fascinating groups. And our goal here is to try to, go into these um, databases and, and to start putting names and pictures on environmental DNA sequences. We've been collaborating with Mike McKay, who's um, at the University of Windsor on these um, winter diatom blooms in Lake Erie. And they, um, this brown ice here is due to the presence of diatoms. And these are usually in offshore areas. And uh, you can see as this, the ice is melting there, you see um, this diatom scum. And the, it's slight problem in that as these blooms are dying, you get these uh, anoxic regions that develop in the lake. But it's just fascinating as well. When you have diatoms in a massive bloom, you should have something that's eating them or parasitizing them. And sure enough, there are um, a lot of chytrids there, especially late in the season. And Kensuke has been able to find these guys. Here's the alga. This is a centric diatom. And then here's the chytrid on it. Then these are colonial diatoms. Um, and here's the chytrid on it. 
and get these individual cells and sequence them. And so what he's able to do is, is to make a, a phylogeny out of those and now try to put names on these things here. So previously it's not clear what, what this organism looks like or what this, sorry, what the sequence, what the organism that gave rise to this sequence looked like. This is sequences from, you know, environmental DNA. And now we could say, well, it's probably a diatom parasite and it's probably even a stephanodiscus parasite. Um, and so we're able to, to use this approach to try to resolve some of the biology. I mean, we can't say a ton. We can say that it's a chytrid um, and it's making zoospores and it's attacking diatoms. So we're able to sort of narrow down what the function of these, these organisms might be. Like the um, like the zygomycete, the zoopagales project, we also found that there are surprises as well in these uncultured chytrids, and um, we've we've found that a lot of them are infected with these DNA viruses, and these are interesting DNA viruses because they're part of this family of um, what's known as giant viruses. And they're giants, and I'll, I'll describe them in a second. But what, what we notice is that there's this group who we're now calling MycoDNA viridae, which is um, only really found in the chytrid fungi, so the, the swimming fungi. And um, it forms this group that's just that hasn't been described to date. They're relatively large viruses. Um, so um, you've got 300,000 uh, bases or letters in the genome of this virus. I think that compares with like SARS virus, which is 30,000 bases. Um, so it's much bigger and a lot of genes. So there's 300 genes there. So giant viruses, if you haven't heard of them are really fascinating. They, um, there's this other term for them because they basically reside in the nucleus or the cytoplasm of organisms. They could be half of a micron big, so they're really large. The known hosts are algae, um, animals, and amoebae. And, um, and the genomes can be even bigger than the ones that are in fungi and could have even a thousand genes. And they could also be infected even by other viruses. And there's a really um, fun radio lab on these giant viruses episode called Shrink, if you're interested in that. So just wanted to wrap up with the take-home points. Um, although, you know, and I, there's no knock on these really awesome, delicious ma macroscopic fungi, but most of the diversity in terms of the tree of the fungal tree of life is in these microscopic single-celled species that you don't see unless you look for them. Um, and when you do study these fungi, fungi you get a lot of surprises. Um, and one of, for example, like the discovery of these giant DNA viruses is one of them. Um, another is that they, they um, have life cycles more like animals than, than they do other fungi. Um, and, you know, of course, I mentioned that there are these hidden treasures, which are these things growing or things residing inside the cells. And, you know, I should speak on the viruses part, like 
we know these things have these viruses in them, but we don't know what they do. And as far as we can tell, the, their effect on the cell may not be that detrimental. Um, and as I mentioned, our ultimate goal is to sequence a bunch of genomes and to be able to actually take that genome sequence and predict an organism's form and function from it. Many people to thank here. Um, I'm really appreciative of, of the intelligent and friendly and um, wonderful people that have been part of the research group at University of Michigan um, and the Joint Genome Institute with many um, wonderful scientists there who have collaborated on the single cell work. And I, yeah, and Jason uh, Steich at the University of California, Riverside, who helped work on the mycoviruses. And that's that's all I have. Um, I and I um, thank you for this opportunity to give this talk. And I uh, will be happy to take any questions if you have any. Well, we do have some questions. Michael Murphy said, if only that organism in Tofrino mycotina has a fruiting body, does that indicate it likely evolved the fruiting body recently? And I hope I pronounced it right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Tofino So this Neolecta, um, you know, recently is it's it's kind of hard to say. I mean, these things are kind of like dinosaurs that never went extinct in in some ways of 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 putting it. So they they could have been like making that same looking fruiting body for um, you know hundreds of millions of years. But it could be that it, it did evolve very recently too. Um, so I wouldn't rule out either of them, but it does look like it's an independent origin of the fruiting body. So that makes it a really interesting way or interesting um, species to compare to, you know, say the, the uh, say like geoglossum or earth tongues, which look similar, but, you know, they have completely converged in the way they look from a from an ancestor that didn't look anything like them. Um, Matt, do you wish to, I know it's kind of common. Do you want to say you're actually kind of like next? You could have been- I was just gonna, I was, I was just trying to answer the question in the chat earlier and I was just gonna kind of echo what, what Tim said that it, it, for a while it seems like it's been kind of unclear if it's two separate gains in the ascomycetes or one, and I was just saying I knew there had been some genomic work, but I, I couldn't quite remember what the punchline of it was. I remember there's a paper Jason had been on and then like Laszlo, uh, I'm going to mispronounce his last name, but Nagy, Naj, Naj, I think it's N -A -G -Y. Naj. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, sorry. I, I, no offense. I just don't know how to say it, but I knew he'd been doing a lot of, he and his group had been doing a lot on that. And I just couldn't recall what their conclusions were. They were separate or one and I was always kind of leaning more towards the separate but I thought it was maybe that some of the machinery was there early on but maybe not all of it was kind of what people had been saying I think that's right yeah so there's sort of like the ability to make a large fruiting body may have evolved much earlier and and you do see some of that in um the zygote the former zygomycota so like um, endogenies with little tiny little fruiting bodies. So they're not, they're, they're mostly microscopic, these, these non-dicaria, but there are some exceptions. 
Michael Murphy inquired, are there any clues as to how we might culture these in the future? You know, I, I, um, I think so. I think that the, the genomes should be able to tell us what the nu nutritional requirements might be. So, you know, you can take the genes and you can see like what biochemical pathways these organisms have, like, oh, they can synthesize, you know, um, all the amino acids or not, or they, they you know, they might, f and one of the cool things we found is that, um, well, we didn't find, but others have found that er these, some of these chytrids actually are using um, vitamin B12, um, you know, that is something that wasn't expected. And so now maybe that, that knowing that they, you know, inherited that from a common ancestor with animals, but no, the, the rest of the fungi kind of got rid of that. Now we maybe can go back to our approaches and add, you know, those vitamins that are the nutritional requirements that are left over from a common ancestor. Um, but you know, it's just hard. And um, for me personally, you know, there's a lot of biochemistry there that I just don't have a good handle on. But uh, I do believe that the, the clues are there for us to follow up. Uh, Randy inquired, when you barcode sequence an environmental sample, how do you sort into species? Wouldn't SNPs look like sequence ambiguities in the, in the reads? Yeah, that's a good question. So there's there there is an older approach and then a newer approach. And the older approach is takes and try takes all those sequences and tries to assemble them into operational species. Um, and in order to do that, you have to collapse that those var variants into a single species. And you might so we had sort of like a a yardstick of like 97% similar is just one species. And you have to do that if you want to try to estimate how many species you actually have. Um, but you also have to acknowledge that, you know, some kind of arbitrary cutoff is going to not give you the real number. And some people have been maybe frustrated with like the fact that it is so arbitrary that they said, well, no, let's just do every sequence that's distinct and unique is its own unit. And those are called like um, amplified sequence variants or something like this. And each, each sequence is treated as, as distinct. And you know that um, it's not really capturing species level diversity, but you can analyze that and still get um, test hypotheses. Uh, well, actually, Matt Nelson had a question. He's, I was interested to know your thoughts on microsporidians and where to draw the line for true fungi. Um, I'm, <laughs> that's a good question. Uh, you know, th this is somewhat contentious. Um, microsporidians, I didn't mention them, but they're highly reduced parasites. And when they're growing inside their host, their intracellular parasites, they lack a cell wall. And they'd, so in doing so, they do something that most fungi don't do because most fungi are specializing on feeding 
by digesting things on the outside of a fungal cell wall and then taking them up through a fungal cell wall. And that cell walls is like really fundamental for how they grow in a penetrative kind of fashion. Um, yeah, I'm just I'm just into um, inclusivity. Um, I could try to use buzzwords to say why why that would be a good approach, but you know, I I I just think um, you know we used to think at some point that they were reduced fungi, like deeper up in the tree, and people were kind of like, okay, that's fine if they are, then they're still fungi. And now we think they're more at the base, but the morphology hasn't changed. Um, and I think now from studying these chytrids more that there's this sort of more gradual progression of something more animal-like into something that's more fungal-like. And there is that sort of major transition between, um, say, digesting across a cell wall um, and secreting enzymes across the cell wall and taking stuff up that's digested through a cell wall that's kind of a thing that appears at one place on the tree but even that is like you know if you want to like the rosellas and the aphylids they actually have this cyst stage where they form a cell wall and then they start to digest the host cell wall just enough to get inside there so um these are interesting arguments but i i, I think that I, I just want fungi to be as broad as possible. And, you know, I, 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 I've said in some cases, nuclearia could be in there, or at least that's a paper that Mary Burby had, and I went along with it. Um, but probably anything just sort of inside nuclearia is, is a fungus to me. And Megan inquired, are those tungsten needles that you're using for isolating fungi? Yeah, um, I, tungsten, I, I think so. I, we, um, we get them like they're from dental supplies store um, and which we can readily get and they're, they're really thin. Um, and so, yeah, and you can sterilize them pretty readily. So Kevin was, you know, he'll have to like pick off individual spores and take them like one at a time, but they're, small enough, you know, yeah, I can get it near a spore and it's, it's, much, it's around the same size of a spore. Are there any more questions or does Greg, Patrick, or Matthew wish to make any comments or whatever? I was just typing a question, but uh, <laughs> fascinating talk, Tim. It was really cool. And I hadn't paid much attention to those giant uh, viruses before. Are they consistently found? I mean, like, are they always found in the same species? Or are they really, you know, episodic? Or, you know, to give some idea of, do they play a role? Or, you know, just uh, what is, what's their distribution? Yeah, good question. Um, so we're really in early days on this. Um, and they kind of just fell out from the genome sequencing. Now, what we'd really want to know is like um, what they look like and what they do. Um, and so if we, we had maybe 100 chytrid genomes and they're in maybe 10 of them. Okay. And, um, but, pro but in, in Allomyces, we had, we have three strains and they're in two of them. And, um, and then I think we've started to PCR for them in a, a larger set of strains and they're, they're going to be common, I think, 
in Allomyces. Uh, so we think that they could be this structure that was observed um, back, you know, 30, 40 years ago with electron microscope called um, gamma bodies. Um, so we're trying to trying to tie the old literature to to the that um, virus. Um, but you know, it's what's interesting is like. So we inherited this, these cultures from the Fungal Genetic Stock Center, these Allomyces cultures. And these things, you know, we woke them up from spores that have been, you know, dried down, you know, I don't know, 30, 40 years ago, just sitting there on a filter paper and they come back to life and they have their viruses with them. And there's nothing like obvious. It's like they're not lysing the host or anything. Um, so it's really mysterious what they do. So it's going to take us a while, I think, to, to figure this out. I was uh, wondering if anybody associated with the, all this work is publishing species from environmental samples or these single cell isolates or something. Yeah, that's a good question. Like, are we putting, putting taxonomy to, to, the, to the observations? Yeah. Yeah. So, um, well, that gets a little bit into this um, question of do you do you name stuff on the basis of a sequence only without an actual voucher? Right. Um, so we, well, normally in I mean, in chytrid biology, we we can use like a photo or a drawing as a type, um, but and so I think we could we could start doing that. Um, we don't have the specimen anymore. So we take the picture and then we crush the cell up. Uh, so we just have the DNA after that. Um, but we haven't gotten to where we're actually uh, naming stuff. Kensuke's sequence, we were going to go for, um, I, he's an amazing. And I mean, like this guy can find chytrids. And I've said, let's do a hundred species that you you can find. And I think he would have done it, but then the virus, the COVID came. And so just kind of last year, he wasn't able to do very much. Um, but he's got like 50 different species. I mean, one of the cool things that we found was a hyperparasite. So sequences, algae that have a chytrid on them. And then inside the chytrid, there's a parasite of that as well. Um, there's lots of hidden treasures. Well, just kind of, I don't know if there's other questions, but I just think it's fascinating. You know, we focus so much in the club, understandably because of the makeup of the club on macrofungi and stuff like that. But it's, it's really fascinating. And I think important just to look under the hood and uh, see some of the real diversity of the fungal world and how crazy these organisms really are. I mean, it's a lot of fun. So thanks, Tim. It was really eye-opening for, for, a, for many of us, including me, on some of that diversity. That's really great. Well, Greg, you'll be pleased. Our speaker in June will be talking about rusts. Good. So more diversity for you. Well, thank you very much. This was terrific. Uh, this was not simulcast on Facebook tonight because it sort of wasn't working right. But it will get on YouTube, and then we'll link over to Facebook in a few days. But this was great. We're really glad you came in today and visited with us.
It's my pleasure. Um, very impressive club to see all the, the science that you guys are, are going through. So, um, yeah. By the way, there's a but, last minute question. Okay. Would you mind telling the group a little about the work you and your team have done on DD? Yeah. Um, well, I've been doing this for a while, so I'll, I'll kind of not try to go on too long because I know it's getting late. Um, but BD is the, the the fungus that attacks the frogs. And our question really had always centered on using genetics to figure out the origin of the fungus. And, you know, we, we'd focused more recently on like Brazil and Brazil is a place which has like the most amphibian diversity. And, um, and we, we thought the fungus, so the fungus had, what we what we've figured out is that the fungus kind of exploded across the globe um, as diseases can um, by rapid transmission and high virulence and it's an important problem for frog populations but where did this thing explode from and so we had been focused in brazil because of the diversity thing um, but brazil has some kind of disease problems there too actually um, whereas um, Asia doesn't. And so we've collaborated with sort of this global consortium and we, we sequenced a bunch of strains and found that um, it seems that Asia is the source of this um, global pandemic. And the frogs in Asia are not, they're not having any real problems as far as we know, at least in disease. And they found like this population of the fungus was there highly um, diverse and recombining and it had a very strong signature that that was the origin of, of the disease. And yeah. And so we're, we're going on further. We're, we're like looking still in Brazil in terms of um, what's the role of breeding between different strains of the fungus and how that might impact the, the future pandemic and especially what's happening there in Southern Brazil where we have um, yeah, uh, hybridization going on between the fungal strains. So yeah, um, if anyone had any follow-up questions, feel free to um, you know, send me an email, um, which should be pretty easy to find me, but I'll just type it into the chat here. And by the way, Patrick asks, any findings? Sorry, where is it? On a possible sexual cycle. Yes. You know, um, we know it can do it because we know we have both F1 hybrids and F2 hybrids. Um, so it's definitely doing it, um, in the lab, it's not doing it. And we haven't figured out the mating gene stuff yet, but it's an active area. Um, it's time to, time to answer that question, but it's going to take more work. That's okay. And we're, we're, we're pleased you came and perhaps you'll come another time. Love Talk to. about another aspect of your discipline. Okay, great. Uh, Happy hunting, everyone. Thank you. Have a wonderful you. spring. Have a wonderful spring as well for you. Bye-bye. Cheers.